0: Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Our passage for this morning is 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. And let's begin by reading the passage together. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 16. The Apostle Paul says this. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom... Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. one truly wise system of thought, and that is biblical Christianity. The author of such modern classics as How Then Shall We Live? and The God Who Is There, he was more a philosopher, or perhaps you may even say a historian, than he was a pastor. I would imagine that's why some of you aren't entirely familiar with his work. He wasn't A famous evangelist like a Billy Graham or a great preacher like a John MacArthur or a John Piper. He wasn't even the president of a large seminary like an Al Mohler. Instead, he spent much of his time explaining how Christian doctrine is the only true legitimate expression of truth that there is and how it should therefore be lived out at every level of society. He eventually would go on to become one of the major architects of the religious right in the late 1970s and early 1980s he led the charge against the legalization uh, of abortion for instance in fact some have even gone so far as to say that he almost single-handedly changed evangelicalism's position on that issue from one of acceptance to one of denial so make no mistake you may have never heard of Francis Schaeffer Or you may not be overly familiar with his work, but you've felt his impact. In the words of Christianity today, Perhaps no intellectual, save C.S. Lewis, affected the thinking of evangelicals more profoundly. Perhaps no leader of the period, save Billy Graham, left a deeper stamp on the movement as a whole. Once again, Francis Schaeffer was dedicated to the idea That biblical Christianity is the only truly wise system of thought that there is. Not so his son, Frank Schaeffer. Early in his life, Frank followed in his father's footsteps. He grew up listening to the many Christian and secular intellectuals who visited his family's home in Switzerland. And he would even initially adopt many of his father's positions. He became a filmmaker and helped transform how should we then live into a profoundly influential film series. He strongly encouraged his father's decision to step into the political arena, and he even met with several prominent politicians, including Presidents Gerald Ford and Ronald Reagan in the late 70s and early 80s. But then in the mid-1980s, something started to change. Frank became disillusioned with what he saw in evangelicalism, and he started to drift. By 1990, he would convert to Eastern Orthodoxy. And now today, he is a self-professed Christian atheist. And he openly mocks evangelical Christians for what he calls their addiction to certainty. It's always a bit disconcerting when you come across a Frank Schaefer. After all, it isn't as if this is a man who simply doesn't know what the Bible says or who has only seen a distorted picture of Christianity. No, this is a guy who grew up in the very heart of evangelicalism. He grew up under the tutelage of one of the greatest evangelical minds of the 20th century. His father was a man who not only understood Scripture, but who understood other systems of thought, non-Christian philosophies as well. His was not an intellectually superficial faith, but a vibrant one, one full of deep reflection and earnest application. And he tried to pass that faith on to his children. He tried to pass that faith on to Frank. So you can't just write off Frank Schaefer's unbelief to ignorance. You can't say, well, he only thinks Christianity foolish because he doesn't really understand what he teaches. No, he's seen Christianity up close. He knows what it teaches and why, probably even better than I'd venture to say anyone in this room. And yet, he still rejects it. What do you do with that? How do you explain the unbelief of a man like Frank Schaeffer? This is, in a sense, the very question that we're wrestling with here in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. through 16. The fact is, Frank Schaefer isn't alone. There are a lot of people who reject Christianity. Indeed, the Bible even tells us that most people will reject Christianity. And, many, and believe it or not, many of those who reject it actually do understand at least the basics of our faith. Meaning, they don't reject it out of sheer ignorance. They don't reject it simply because they've you know, failed to understand what we believe, that we've failed to clearly articulate what we believe. No, they've heard it and they understand what we're trying to say and yet they reject it. Why is that? It's because for very many, Christianity appears to be utter foolishness. And that's true not only with respect to what Christians think theologically, but with how they live practically. That's what Frank Schaeffer thinks. In his own words, he says, the problem with evangelical Christianity is that it is stupid and that people who come in, who go in bright come out stupid in the end. For example, C.S. Lewis or my wonderful late father, Francis Schaeffer. This is how he regards his, fa- his own father today and many of the positions he fought for. Uh, Francis Schaeffer believed in an inerrant Bible which proclaims a literal six-day creation. And in Frank Schaeffer's mind, this is intellectual suicide, and it led his father to adopt positions which are likewise ignorant and stupid. The evangelical position against abortion, for instance, which his father fought for, and which Frank Schaefer now rejects. Their position on men's and women's roles, essentially our entire system of thought on human sexuality, which Frank Schaefer likewise rejects. He would say it's all built largely upon mythology. This is what many other people think as well. They hear about Jesus' resurrection from the dead or his virgin birth. They hear about Noah and the ark or Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. And they say to themselves, well, this is completely ridiculous. I mean, clearly, these are just fantastic stories. This isn't real. And since this is all nonsense, people suppose, then all the other stuff the Bible claims, all the demands it makes about how people are supposed to live which so often fly in the face not only of our desires but sometimes even our logic all of that stuff is clearly nonsense as well paul has addressed why the world tends to view christianity this way earlier in first corinthians in chapter one he explains it's because god planned it that way he wanted it to be regarded as foolish He says that God very intentionally planned to save through a message that seems contrary to human understanding and the reason God did it this way was so that in the end no flesh could boast before God. He didn't want there to be anything that a person could point to and say, see this is why I'm saved, I figured it out, instead he wanted to humble mankind. He wanted man to learn to boast in God and his power instead of in his own flesh. And so God saved in a way that exalts His power and wisdom as infinitely superior to man, not the wisdom and power of men. In short, a kind of humiliation is taking place in salvation, wherein man is learning, as Paul states in chapter 1, verse 25, that the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The only problem is that, as a result of all this, the world still regards the gospel as foolish. And this means that guys like Frank Schaeffer are going to laugh at us. They're going to call us stupid. And again, this isn't just coming from one or two people, it's coming from a lot of people. Sometimes, depending on your context, even most people. In fact, to make matters even worse, it's very often coming from the people that are the somethings in society. It's like what Paul noted back in chapter 1 with respect to the Corinthians. He observes, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. The fact is, the Corinthian Christians inhale from the upper crust of their society. And this has pretty much always been the case with the church. And it's no different today. It's not that there aren't any intellectual or cultural leaders in the church. There are some, but the reality is that, by and large, the church isn't made made up of what you might call the elite in our culture. Quite the opposite, actually. The elite, rather, tend to be the portion of our society that object to Christianity the loudest. They're the ones who are most likely to write us off as simpletons. They're often among the first to call our way of life uninformed and backwards. (coughs) And brothers and sisters, let's be honest, that can be kind of tough. Not just the general we rejection we experience, but even most specifically the rejection we experience at the hand of the elite, the somethings. After all, it would certainly seem like they've got it figured out. They're smart, they're successful. They're rich, they're popular. It seems like they're wise, doesn't it? It seems like they know what's going on. After all, how could they do the things they do? How could they achieve the things that they achieve if they didn't know what was going on? And so when they reject us, it stings double. Not only does someone think you're stupid, but it is someone who seems competent to make that decision, to make that judgment. When that happens, it's quite common for Christians to be tempted to do one of two things. Either they'll start to doubt their faith. Either they'll start to take the judgment seriously and start to consider whether or not they are foolish for actually believing what the Bible says about Jesus. Or they'll adapt. Basically, they'll try to conform their beliefs or their practice to cultural norms as a way of dressing it up. They'll try to earn the respect of the elite By thinking and acting like the elite. But what should we do? How ought we respond to the Frank Schaffers of the world? I think this is a question that Paul answers for us here in 1 Corinthians 2, 6-16. As I've explained several times throughout our study of this book, the Corinthians as a whole seem to have been simply enamored with the concept of prestige and social acceptance. They earnestly desired the approval of men, and it would appear that it was this desire for cultural acceptance that partly led to them beginning to question the Apostle Paul's ministry. Again, Paul didn't speak with a sort of philosophical wisdom or oratorical excellence that was so often prized in Greco-Roman society. And that led many of the Corinthians to conclude that maybe the problem was that Paul wasn't with it. That he didn't have the stuff to make it in their culture. And that maybe this meant they needed to reconsider the kind of influence that they allowed him to enjoy over the church. They've written to him with several questions about how to properly apply their faith, but before Paul can answer these questions, he determines. Yet he first needs to reassert his authority by defending his ministry to the Corinthians and even by rebuking the Corinthians for their arrogance. And this is where we're at currently in 1 Corinthians 2 6 through 16. Earlier in chapter 1, Paul began his rebuke by explaining one reason why he didn't preach with the kind of eloquence and wisdom that the Corinthians demanded. And that was because to do so would be to undermine God's purposes in the gospel. Again, God intends to save through power, not wisdom, he explains. And so I came to you with a very simple message, he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, here in chapter 2, verse 6, Paul begins to explain a second reason why his message was unsophisticated. And that's actually because the maturity, I think rather I should say the immaturity of the Corinthians demanded it. Basically, Paul had to teach the Corinthians the really basic, simple stuff, he says, because they weren't ready for more. And indeed, by the reports he's hearing about these various parties that have developed in his absence, it would appear they're still not ready for it. They still haven't grasped even the very basics of their faith. What are these uh, basic concepts? Well, Paul is explaining one of them right here, and that's the fact that when it comes to discerning spiritual issues, the world and its wisdom counts for exactly nothing. What's really foolish, he says, is not to be rejected by the world, but to seek their acceptance. Because the world knows absolutely nothing of any substantive value when it comes to God. This is what Paul is explaining here in verses 6 through 16. He's transitioning from defense to offense, from defending his ministry to, to criticizing the Corinthians for their way of thinking. And as he does this, he begins to explain just why it is the world doesn't get it. Why it is that a guy like a Frank Schaeffer can sit under the tutelage of an evangelical giant like Francis Schaeffer... And still walk away. I said last week that in this explanation, Paul provides us with three concepts to reflect on when we find ourselves feeling the pressure to conform to the world and its wisdom. Or you might even think of this as three truths to think on when you begin to esteem the spiritual opinions of the cultural elite. The first concept or truth we looked at last week, and that's to consider the type of wisdom you received in Christ. This concept emerges in verses 6 through 8, where Paul says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had... They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The Corinthians, once again, are enamored with this idea of earthly prestige, and they've come to regard Paul's teaching with a touch of disdain because he doesn't speak with the sort of philosophical wisdom or oratorical excellence that is expected in Greco-Roman society. Here, after explaining that he didn't preach this way because God doesn't save this way, He now begins to shift his attention to what is really the second reason why this message seems so simple. And that's the fact that the Corinthians were not yet ready to receive the more advanced teaching in the faith. This is a point that he'll develop further as we get into chapter three. There, Paul will say, verses one through three, but I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So again, Paul's starting to go on the attack here. He's starting to explain that part of the reason why he spoke so simply was because the Corinthians were not yet ready to receive the more advanced kind of teaching he had offered them. And that explanation, that rebuke, really begins here when he says, verse 6, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. He says that there is a kind of wisdom that he and other teachers like him impart, only he explains, although this is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. He says, we do impart wisdom, but understand this is not a wisdom that either originates with or is promoted by the power structures of this society. This is not a wisdom that the elite are going to accept. And then in verse 7, he explains why. He says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. He says, Verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Again, Paul is starting to refer to these more advanced notions of Christian doctrine, which the Corinthians were unready to accept. Paul says he does impart this wisdom to the mature, only he wants the Corinthians to understand that the rulers of this age don't accept it. And the reason they don't is because it's a hidden and secret wisdom of God. Meaning it's not a wisdom that's discoverable through merely human understanding. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how much money or power you have. You cannot buy or force it out of someone. There's only one way to receive it. And that's by... Divine disclosure. This is a hidden and secret wisdom of God. Again, Paul notes that the rulers of this age are not able to perceive this wisdom. Since if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, Paul doesn't impart, or Paul does impart wisdom to the mature in the church, but he wants the Corinthians to understand that the rulers of this age aren't going to regard this wisdom as wise since they lack the spiritual faculties to perceive it. And the way you can know this, he says, is by how they respond to the gospel. They're unable to receive the basics of the faith. They think the cross foolish. And so clearly this means they're going to regard the doctrine that's built on top of that foundation as foolish as well. This is all a very important point to make since it would seem the Corinthians are partly judging Paul's ministry by whether or not it's deemed acceptable by outsiders. It's the same issue we're going to see come in in chapter 6 when we get to the matter of lawsuits. It would seem that the Corinthians still hold the opinion that the spiritual judgments of unbelievers are to be taken seriously. They still hold the spiritual judgments of unbelievers in high regard even to the degree that they're willing to submit to their authority in deciding matters of right and wrong. And it's this very attitude that's causing them to question the Apostle Paul. The unbeliever thinks Paul's teaching is stupid, and so maybe Paul's teaching is stupid. And again, this isn't just with respect to the the gospel, it's with respect to Paul's practice, his ethics. I mean, this is something you see all the time, don't you? The world starts to condemn some aspect of Christian teaching, sometimes even an aspect of Christian teaching that's been taught for a couple of millennia. And then the church is on roller skates. They're going, now wait a second, does does the Bible really say that? Listen, that's not because the church is, is just genuinely wrestling with the meaning of Scripture. It's because they're acting like unbelievers still have some authority to judge spiritual things. Well, Paul is letting the Corinthians know that this way of thinking is totally unacceptable. He's saying the unbeliever lacks the spiritual capacity to make this sort of a judgment. And he says you can know this because they reject the gospel. Basically, if if they lack the capacity to perceive the wisdom of the cross... Then you certainly can't expect them to perceive the wisdom of the more advanced teaching that Paul imparts to the mature. It's it's like letting them teach the 300 level college course after they've already failed Christianity 101. Paul's telling them this doesn't make any sense, this is backwards. But of course, in order to make this point, he first has to explain why this is backwards, which he does by explaining that this is a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He reminds the Corinthians that these unbelievers lack the spiritual faculties to make these kinds of judgments. I said last week that this is one concept to consider when you find yourself feeling pressure to conform to cultural standards, or when you find yourself tempted to esteem the opinions of the cultural elite when they look down their nose at you on account of your faith. You consider the type of wisdom you received in Christ, which is a hidden and secret wisdom of God. Meaning that educated though they may be, rich and powerful though they may be, their opinion still counts for exactly nothing when it comes to judging spiritual matters. Reason being, this is not a kind of wisdom that is discovered through sheer education or social status. It's like Paul said back in chapter one, God intentionally designed this message not to be discovered that way. And he did it this way in order to demonstrate the futility of human wisdom and power. So you don't let the fact that they seem wise in this world, wise in this age get to you because the wisdom that God is imparting is not that kind of a wisdom. It's sort of like the, the surgeon who doesn't know how to change his own oil. Or perhaps even more accurately, it's like the surgeon who can't hit a curveball. Right? That requires a, a completely different skill set. And just because a person is competent in one area of knowledge doesn't mean they're necessarily competent in another. A person can be impre- incredibly intelligent and skilled in one area of knowledge and still lack the ability to excel in a different subject. That's what Paul is saying is happening with the cultural elite. Just because they have the knowledge necessary to excel in this age, in this world, in this life, doesn't mean they have the knowledge necessary to survive in the next. And if you want proof, he says, then look at what they do with Jesus. And of course, I spent a good amount of time encouraging you to reflect on this point, because after all, If what Paul is saying here is true, then it means that the things we believe and the things we do are not provable, at least not in the normal sense of the word. But of course, this all raises the question, if this kind of wisdom is not provable in the traditional sense of that word, then how does one perceive it? And this is where we begin to get into the second and third concepts to consider. And these concepts, I think, can help the one who struggles with doubt in this kind of situation. I think particularly this second concept. You know, someone encounters a man like a Frank Schaefer, a man who actually understands Christianity very well, and, and at least in terms of its formal doctrines, right? He gets that part, and yet he still rejects it. That can shake someone up. It can make them start to wonder, wait a second, why, don't, why won't he believe? Is there something that I'm missing? And here Paul explains, no, the problem isn't what you're missing. It's what they're missing. So what is that? What is that person missing? We discover the answer in our second concept or truth to consider. And that's to consider how you've received this wisdom. When you find yourself feeling pressure either to conform to cultural standards or when you find yourself tempted to esteem the opinions of the cultural elite, when they look down their nose at you for your faith, you need to not only consider the type of wisdom you received, but to consider also how you received it. So then how does a person receive this kind of wisdom? I think there are two ways we can answer that question. And the first answer is by the Spirit. A person receives this wisdom through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. After observing that the rulers of this age have not accepted this wisdom, Paul continues, verses 9 through 13. He says, But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Paul begins his explanation with this phrase, but as it is written, uh, thereby appealing to the Word of God, which is significant. He's appealing to divine revelation to demonstrate his point. Now, what Scripture he's appealing to here, I'll tell you, it isn't entirely clear. In all likelihood, he's probably referring to a saying within Judaism at this time, which is itself a composite statement derived from several different Old Testament texts. However, regardless of how Paul gets here, the point is that Paul appeals to divine authority, to the wisdom of God, instead of to merely human wisdom, to make his point. And from this statement, he observes that what... Eye has not seen, or ear has not heard, nor the heart of man imagined. Meaning, again, this is a kind of wisdom that man has neither discovered through his physical senses, through observation, nor is it one that he's created. So where does this wisdom come from? Paul continues, he says, What God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. I know that can be a little bit of a confusing quotation, but basically the quote serves as the subject of this sentence. Paul is referring to this previous idea of this hidden knowledge of God and he's saying that's the knowledge I'm talking about and it's disclosed to us through the Spirit. Now, I'd remind you that the us in this context probably refers to Paul and his associates, not to Christians generally. I mentioned this last week. Paul is still defending his ministry here. And in context, he's telling the Corinthians that he's received his teaching from God by the Spirit. In other words, when he says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand that these things freely given us by God, that would appear to be a reference to Paul and his associates. They have received the Spirit, so they might understand the things freely given to them by God. Really, this is uh, another passage, I think, that could argue for the notion of apostolic authority or even scriptural inspiration. And yet that doesn't mean the Corinthians aren't included in this equation. 4, verse 13, Paul notes, And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And of course, he goes on to state that without this Spirit, a person is unable to receive this teaching. He says, verse 14, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So both the teacher and the student have the Spirit in this equation. The one is receiving truths from God by the Spirit. That's what we see with the apostles and some of these mysteries that they're disclosing. And then they're imparting this truth to those who are made capable of receiving them by the Holy Spirit. That's the whole meaning of this phrase, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. You can almost think of it like a language. It's not just the speaker who needs to know the language, but the listener as well. If one speaks English and the other speaks Spanish, then they aren't going to understand each other. But if they both speak English, then the truth can not only be taught, but received. That's what's taking place here with the Spirit. Now, I said last week that this means that this is all a bit subjective, I think we can say that there is an objective element here, if indeed it's the Spirit who's speaking. That objective element would be the Scripture. Since as Paul will note later in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 3, that the Scripture is itself God-breathed, or as stated in the English, inspired, meaning breathed in. That's very consistent with Paul's understanding of the scripture. You compare Ephesians 5:18 with Colossians 3:16 for instance, and you discover that for Paul, to be filled with the spirit is synonymous with letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Later on in Ephesians 6:17, he refers to the word of God as the sword of the spirit. So again, there's an objective element to this in the sense that the hidden truths are still revealed on the pages of the scriptures. And they're never going to contradict what is found in the written word. And yet the question is, why does someone like you and I regard this teaching, this disclosure, to be the word of God, whereas someone like Frank Schaeffer regards it as, quote-unquote, mythology? This is his real problem with evangelicals, by the way. He calls himself a, a Christian atheist, which can sound oxymoronic. But what he means by this is that he accepts as true the essential ethical teachings of Christianity, while at the same time rejecting the metaphysical realities that that these teachings are built on as myth. Basically, he sees the Bible as a book that teaches some true things, or at least some things that he would regard as personally meaningful to him, but it's not entirely true. And his problem with evangelicals is that we don't treat the Bible this way. His father, Francis Schaeffer, didn't treat the Bible this way. Instead, we say that the scripture is God-breathed. We receive it in the words of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, not as the word of men, but as, as what it really is, the word of God. Why is this so? Why do you and I receive these truths as divine revelation, whereas someone like Frank Schaeffer will regard it simply as the word of perhaps well-intentioned, but still very fallible men. Paul would say it's because of the Spirit. The Spirit convicts one group that this is the Word of God, whereas the other group is not so convinced. Meaning this is somewhat subjective. There isn't some external reality that you can point to to explain this, since, again, then it wouldn't be this secret and hidden wisdom that Paul talks about up in verse 7. Since then salvation would rest on the wisdom of men rather than on the power of God. No, there's a sense in which the only explanation a Christian can offer for why they believe these things is simply because I do. God convicts me that these things are true. Of course, that's not to say that there may not still be reasons that they can point to. This is not a faith that happens apart from reason. And yet none of those reasons are necessarily sufficient to prove their point. It's not a faith that's founded upon reason. It's neither a logical or illogical belief, but an illogical one. And friends, when you stop and think about it, this in and of itself actually makes perfect sense. I love Paul's reasoning here. He explains why it must be this way, starting in the second half of verse 10 and running into verse 11. He says, For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Guys, this is a really uh, simple but profound observation Paul's making here. Think about it. How does someone know what you're thinking. They might try to guess based on your appearance or based on your actions, but at the end of the day, it would only be a guess. All those kinds of observations could be misinterpreted. There's only one way that a person can really know what you're thinking. And that's if you tell them. Meaning they can't read your mind. Instead, if they want to know what you're thinking from one minute to the next, you have to disclose it to them. Paul says it's the same way with God. God is a person just like the rest of us. He's not a a force of energy. He's a being, a person. So how are you going to know what he's thinking? Well, it's if he tells you. I tell you, if you stop and think about it, this makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense, most especially given who God is. After all, if God is everything he says he is, then it's really impossible for us to in any way understand God without divine disclosure. And that's because God is infinite. I mean, do you grasp this, the, the significance of that idea? Do you know what that means? That God is infinite. It means that there's a sense in which you will never fully understand God, it is simply impossible. You know, there are these statements in the Bible that say it's impossible to see God and live. Well, listen, that makes sense logically. Because for you to see God in His essence, as He really is, to be able to completely comprehend Him would require you to be able to see, to grasp, infinity. You would have to be able to view time as he see time, sees time, for instance. You would have to be able to know all things as he knows them because the Bible tells us that's what's rolling around in his head. Quite frankly, you lack the capacity as a creature to see God like that. It's like when you go to the IMAX theater, right? And You're sitting in the front row. Your vision isn't wide enough to take it all in. So understand, it's literally impossible For you as a creature to truly know the mind of God. And quite obviously that means you're never going to simply seize his thoughts by force. Even if you could try, there would always be some element of his thinking that's outside your grasp. And so how are you going to know what he's thinking? How are you going to know what he's like? There's only one way. He must reveal his thoughts to you. It's like what it says in John 118, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. You cannot see God in his essence. And so the only way that a person is ever going to know him, the only way that a person can see him as he is, is if someone who can see him as he is, some person who is themselves infinite as God is infinite, someone who is himself God and knows his thoughts, discloses him, communicates him. In John 1.18, that person is the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Here in 1 Corinthians 2, it's the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Friends, this makes sense. I don't know if you remember, I mean honestly, I wouldn't expect you to remember this, but a few months back, I think it was about close to a year ago now, I read a quote to you from a couple of psychologists who were describing the problem with a strictly scientific approach to psychology. And in this quote, they say that the problem with this approach to psychology is that it fails to take into account what the mind is before it tries to study it. They observe that the modern scientific approach is incredibly useful in studying objects or events that exist in space and time since those types of objects are measurable and observable. However, they said that this approach is not very useful for studying objects that do not exist in space and time, such as the concept of the mind or even God. They observed that in order to know what kind of a measurement you should apply to an object, so to speak, you first have to determine what the object is. You have to define its substance, so to speak, its essence, its nature, and then you can determine the appropriate way to measure it. Again, it makes sense to use you know, scientific data to observe physical objects because such objects are measurable. But how, What criteria would you use to evaluate, say, historical claims? I mean, you're saying something happened in the past. How do you know? There may be some historical evidence of the event that survives into the present, but outside of that, how do you know that it happened? You can't measure it because it doesn't exist in time and space. It's in the past. So what do you do? Well, you turn to other types of evidence. Eyewitnesses, for example, people who were there and and did see it with their own eyes. The nature of a subject determines the appropriate way of observing and discovering it. So, if God is everything he claims to be, then what's the proper way of knowing him, of discovering him? Paul's got it down right here. It's through disclosure. It's through divine revelation. Basically, God's got to tell you. There's no other way. And again, this means that this is a very subjective kind of knowledge. There isn't some, something you control or prove with data. It's something you perceive internally. Now, I mentioned this last week. If you're like me, that might make you a little bit nervous. Does that make you nervous? You get kind of uneasy at that thought that you can't distill this truth down to people and prove it? If so, I have to tell you that's good because that's sort of the point. Going back to chapter one, God doesn't want man to think that he's in control of this knowledge. He wants man's faith to rest, not in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this actually leads us to the second way that this kind of knowledge is perceived. And that's through humility. So a person receives this knowledge, both by the Spirit and through humility. There's a sense in which all subjects are cumulative, meaning you have to accept certain foundational principles in order to arrive at the more advanced conclusions. This is actually partly why scientists simply reject the possibility of the supernatural out of hand, is because if you accept the supernatural, then you're accepting that not all phenomena are necessarily repeatable and observable. And if they're not repeatable and observable, then they're not testable. There's always the option that the reason why something happened is because, well, it was a miracle. So they toss that option out completely, and they do it in order to seek out an explanation for effects and arrive at a higher understanding of the physical realm. And if you're performing scientific work, that's obviously a pretty good foundation to start with. It's a very effective means at arriving at a more advanced understanding of the physical realm. And this is true of virtually any subject. You've got to understand addition and subtraction before you can understand algebra. And you need to understand algebra before you can move on to trigonometry and calculus. And it's the same way spiritually. You see this concept littered throughout this passage. Again, verse 6, Paul says, Yet among the mature, meaning among the advanced, we do impart wisdom. Again, down in verse or chapter 3, he's going to explain, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you're not ready for it. And even now you're not ready for it. Even right here, verse 9, Paul implies that there's a precondition to receiving these spiritual truths. Do you guys see it there? He says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of a man imagined, what God has prepared, do you see it? for those who love him. Love for God is a precondition to receiving this hidden and secret wisdom, this knowledge that is received as wise among the mature. So what's the basic requirement that Paul has in mind here? What's the foundational knowledge that he has in mind here, which he says is necessary in order to understand the more advanced applications he has in mind? Well, it's precisely the point He's been driving home since verse 10 of chapter 1. And that's humility. It's recognition of the fact that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Humility, of course, is a basic requirement for any form of instruction. It says, it's as it says in Proverbs 18.2, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only in expressing his own opinion. That's because Proverbs 12.15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Basically, the problem with trying to teach a fool is that they already think they know everything. That's why you can't teach them. They won't listen to you. It's their pride. You can't learn anything until you first acknowledge that you don't know something. There's really a level of humility and even faith in all kinds of learning because you have to accept as the opening premise that the teacher knows more than you. And so when you don't understand something, you don't assume it's because they don't understand the subject. No, you assume it's because you don't understand it. And so you ask follow-up questions in order to understand it better. Again, humility is a basic requirement for any form of instruction. However, I'll tell you, humility is most especially required in this instance, considering everything that Paul has been saying over the past couple of chapters. After all, Paul's entire point is that this is a wisdom that the elite in this world are unable to perceive. In other words, it's not just that a person has to be willing to submit to the authority of a teacher like Paul in order to understand, but they must do so while the individuals of their society who seem to have it all figured out Are telling them that they're fools friends this requires a tremendous amount of humility to be willing to be regarded as a fool and ignore all the social pressure to conform to cultural expectations in order to understand but that's exactly what's required Paul explains to become mature look ahead here chapter 3 verse 18 Chapter 3, verse 18. This is how Paul is going to conclude this particular subset of this section that spans from chapters 1 through 4. He writes, chapter 3, verses 18 through 23. He says, Let no one uh, deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly to God, for it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. In the famous words of St. Anselm, I do not seek to understand in order that I may believe but I believe in order to understand. For this I also believe that unless I believe, I shall not understand. Faith leads a person into understanding, into wisdom. And faith, obviously, requires humility. Unfortunately, this is precisely the thing that the Corinthians still lack. Again, as Paul observes, chapter 3, verse 3, he says, I couldn't give you the good stuff And he explains, for you're still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Paul saw the, the pride and the arrogance going on in Corinth, and he understood that if he tried to speak of them, of these other things, these things that they would regard as wisdom, that they would misinterpret it. They would treat it in the same way they treated Apollos' teaching. And they'd use it as a reason for boasting, Instead of the real purpose for knowledge, which Paul will explain later in this letter, is not boasting, but love. He understood such knowledge would hurt their spiritual growth. Instead of helping it. And so Paul held back for their benefit because of their pride, because they were not yet ready for it. And this is partly why they still think him simple. One of the things that's fascinating about Frank Schaefer. Is that he goes by this label, Christian Atheist. As I explained earlier, what this means is, he, is that he accepts many of the ethics of Christianity, its core teachings, while at the same time rejecting its metaphysical foundations. Do you know why that is? you know why he has this uh, tension in himself? When you listen to him, the reason becomes incredibly apparent. It's because his father is Francis Schaeffer. His father was dedicated to the notion that there's only one truly wise system of thought, and that's biblical Christianity. And Frank was raised in that environment. He was raised with a father who could show him all the goodness and truth and beauty of Christianity, all that it contributed to Western civilization. And he can't bring himself to deny the fact that there is a kind of wisdom in this system of thought. And yet you listen to him. And it's also incredibly apparent that Frank Schaeffer is incredibly proud. The thing he hates about evangelicals is, again, one of the very things his father fought for, and that's our belief in the inspiration, inerrancy, and authority of Scripture. He calls it our addiction to certainty, and he says that it's because of this addiction that they fail to listen uh, to what he calls reason, science, and fact. That's his authority. It's his own mind. It makes him conceited, and the arrogance comes out, even in the tone of his arguments. For example, the following quote comes from a 2017 video in which he criticizes uh, what the religious right has become. The religious right, by the way, which he helped create. And he says, you know, evangelicals have always believed in stupid things, but they've only gotten dumber. They become more and more reactionary. So go ahead, uh, change your labels, but really folks out there, what we really need to do is beat the evangelical vote in 2018, thrash these idiots, hope that some of their young people peel away and find reason, believe in science, fact, and truth. Do you hear that? Do you hear the pride in that statement? It's not surprising. What else could you expect from a man who so implicitly trusts in his own mind and his own reason? And honestly, this has always been the case with Frank. I don't know if you remember, but just a couple of months ago, uh, R.C. Sproul quoted him in one of our videos in Sunday school class as Frank was commenting on Christian art. This was from back in the 80s, back when evangelicals still considered Frank one of their own. And I don't know if you remember, but even before he read that quote, Sproul had to almost apologize for Frank Schaefer's tone. He said that in this book uh, that he was reading from, we, quote, feel the strains of the angry young man coming out, but that, quote, sometimes the angry young man without inhibitions or without reservations tells it like it is in a way that those of us who seek a more staid approach to maturity tend to be more careful, tend to be a little more diplomatic than the younger generation. Guys, this has always been the, fra- the case with Frank Schaefer; He was always proud. He was always enamored with the very kind of things that Paul is warning the Corinthians about here. He's always been enamored with the power structures of the world. There's a sense in which he's always sought the world's approval. And the result is that he no longer abides in the sort of teaching that he was trained in, in his youth, which the world regards as foolish. Instead, he calls himself a Christian atheist. Which again is fascinating because it demonstrates the very concept that Paul is discussing here. That there is a wisdom that comes out as Christianity in Christianity as you abide in it and follow it to its conclusions, to its applications. But it's built upon a foundation that the world's going to regard as foolish. Frank Schaeffer's intellectual pride won't allow him to accept those foundations. But he still can't reject its outcomes. And so instead he lives, ironically enough, in an open contradiction. Now I want to be clear here. I don't say all this now, I'm talking a lot about Frank Schaefer today. I don't, I don't say all this in order to attack this man. That's why I'm not mad at him or anything like that. Truth be told, there are points at which I sympathize with him. Honestly, if you listen to him, it sounds like he was put in a tough position spiritually and he was exposed to a lot of yuck in the church at a very young age. And I know that this fuels some of his anger. So I don't say all of this to attack Frank Schaefer. Rather, I do it to demonstrate for you And hopefully in very clear terms, both the necessity of the Holy Spirit in attaining wisdom and the danger of pride. It doesn't matter what kind of knowledge you have, you can grow up the son of one of the greatest evangelicals of the 20th century. But if you do not have the Spirit of God, or if you're consumed with pride, and if in that pride you seek the approval of men, it doesn't matter. You're going to reject the wisdom Paul has to offer. And on that note, I'm going to conclude very briefly with our third point. I've sort of already talked about this point. Uh, Indeed, I think I've really been explaining it throughout this message. So I'm not going to spend very long here. I'm only going to say a few words. Truth or concept number three. Consider what all this means. So again, consider the type of wisdom you receive. Consider how you've received it. And then finally, consider what this means. Paul concludes this portion of this argument in verses 14 through 16. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Paul's point here is fairly simple. So again, I'm not going to try to get into detail and break this down for you. I think his point's rather apparent by now. The natural person here is obviously the one who lacks the Spirit of God. And the idea is that this sort of person can't pass judgment over the decisions of the one who possesses And in context, I think it's important to note, the one who possesses and walks in the spirit. Reason being, they lack the spiritual resources to pass those kinds of judgments. Basically, their knowledge isn't useful here. This isn't their specialty. This isn't their strength. The type of wisdom they have doesn't transfer. Again, people get confused at this point. You see it all the time. A guy like Stephen Hawking is a brilliant mathematician and physicist, and so some journalist asks him what his opinion on God is. Listen, guys, who cares what Stephen Hawking's opinion on God is? What makes him an authority on that topic? Right? You don't see the, the same publications running into seminaries and asking the latest hotshot theologian what his opinion on black holes is, and why not? It's because he's not a physicist, right? That's not his area of expertise. Friends, it's the same way with essentially everyone who rejects the message of the cross. Such a person may excel in the wisdom of this world, in the wisdom of this age. Who knows, they may even be a brilliant Greek or Hebrew scholar. And that's all well and good. But when it comes to deciding what is and is not proper for Christians to practice, it doesn't matter. They don't get a seat at the table. They don't get to be a part of this discussion. Their judgment means nothing here. And in the end, I hope this encourages you, Christian. Don't let the world bully and intimidate you. Don't let their rejection of your way of life lead you into doubt. The problem isn't that you're missing something. It's that they're missing something. Or better stated, someone. They lack the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God who softens the believer and convicts them that these realities are true regardless of what the world says. So don't let these individuals shake your conviction. Don't let them lead you into doubt. Instead, humble yourself and, in the words of Paul, become a fool that you may become wise. Let's pray.